Star Wars, The Han Solo Adventures by Brian Daly, read by Alec Bowles. Han Solo and the Lost Legacy. Five. Quiet down and sit still. Han took a firmer grip on his first mate's head. The Wookiee, seated in a rump-sprung, sweat-stained acceleration chair in the Millennium Falcon's forward compartment, stopped squirming but couldn't stifle his whimpers. He knew his neck injury had to be tended right away. Han, standing behind him, shuffling for a better stance, held his friend's chin clamped in one elbow. He pushed the palm of his hand against the Wookiee's skull. How many times have I done this now? Stop complaining. Han began to apply pressure again, twisting Chewbacca's head up and to the left. The Wookiee dutifully fought the urge to rise, crimping his long fingers on the arms of the acceleration chair. Meeting resistance, Han drew a deep breath and, without warning, yanked the thick-maned skull with all his might. There was a cracking and popping. Chewbacca yipped and snuffled pitifully. But when Han ruffled his friend's fur compassionately and stepped back, the Wookiee rubbed his neck and moved his head without pain. He immediately went off to prepare the starship for liftoff. If you're through ministering to the afflicted doctor, Hasty said from her seat by the game board, it's time we got a few things settled. Leaning against the tech station, Han agreed. Let's put them on the table and see what we've got. Badur, fully recovered from the stun charge, was sitting next to Hasty. To avoid conflict, he took over. I met Hasty and her sister, Lanny, at a mining camp on a planet named Dalalt, here in the Tyon hegemony. It was a small plunder operation. I was contract labor there. He ignored Han's surprise. Things have been worse than I thought for him, the pilot realized. And things weren't too much better for them, Badur went on. You know how those camps can be. And this one was about the worst I've seen. We three sort of watched out for one another. Lanny had a pilot's guild book and flew a lot of work runs, surface-to-surface -surface stuff. Somewhere she had picked up a log recorder, one of the ancient disc types. No ship has used one in centuries. She couldn't read the characters, of course, but there was a figure most beings in this part of space know, the Queen of Ranroon. How'd a log recorder get to Dalalt? That's where the vaults are, Badur said, and that brought some history back to Han. Zim the Despot had left behind legends of whole planets despoiled, of mass spacings of prisoners and other atrocities. And Zim the Despot had ordered that stupendous treasure vaults be built for the tribute to be sent him by his conquering armies. The treasure never arrived, and the vacant vaults, all that remained from Zim's reign, were a minor curiosity generally ignored by the big, busy galaxy. Are you telling me the queen made it to Dalalt after all? Badur shook his head. But somebody made it there with the log recorder disc. The disc is in a locked box in the public storage facility that set up operations in the old vaults, Hasty told him, 
My sister was afraid it would be taken from her, for the mining company runs surprise inspections, barrack searches, and sensor frisks. So she diverted course on a freight run and made the deposit. How'd she get it in the first place? And where is she now? Han saw the sobering answer on both their faces and wasn't surprised. The opposition, he had already learned, was in deadly earnest. He abandoned the subject. So, off to DeLalt before that rental agent comes looking for his ground coach. But Badur, slapping his ample belly, announced, We have one more crewman coming. He's on his way now. I canceled our public carrier reservation, so the line will refer him directly here. Who? What do we need him for? Han was reluctant to involve too many in this treasure hunt. His name is Skinks. He's a ranking expert on pre-Republic times in this part of space, and he reads ancient languages. He's already deciphered some characters Lanny had copied from the log recorder disc. Good enough for you? Conditionally. Somebody, Han saw, would have to decipher the disc to find out what had happened to the queen. Removing his vest, Han began disencumbering himself of the shoulder holster. Next question. Who's the opposition? The mine operators. You know how the tie-on works. Somebody pays someone in the Ministry of Industry and gets a permit. The mining outfit carves up the terrain any which way, grabs what it can, and gets out long before any inspectors or legal paperwork catch up with them. They usually get their financing from some crime boss. This outfit's run by twins. The woman's name is Juak, and her brother's Rawl. They have a partner, Egomave Foss, their enforcer. He's a big, mean humanoid, a hook, even taller than Chewy there. All three came up the hard way, and that's how they play. Han had buckled his gun belt and holster and transferred his blaster. So I saw. And all you want is for us to get you to DeLalt and get off? Just then, the intercom carried the Wookiee's news that someone was signaling for permission to board. That'll be Skinks, Badur told him. Han passed word to admit the academician. If you'll get us to the vaults and off DeLalt again, Badur resumed, I'll pay you twice your usual first asking price, out of the treasure. But if you throw in with us, you and the Wook can split a full share of the take. Hasty cried, half share, just as Han protested, full share each. They glared at each other. Wound up a little too tight, are we, sweetheart? Han asked. How are you going to get there without us? Flap your arms. He heard Chewbacca's footsteps moving toward the main hatch. Hasty's temper flared. For one hop, you and that furball want a full cut? Badur held up his hands and bellowed, Enough! They quieted. That's nicer, kiddies. We are discussing major cash here. Plenty for everybody. The breakdown's this way. A full share for me because I got Hasty off to Lalt alive, and Lanny passed what she knew along to both of us equally. Two shares for Hasty, her own and poor Lanny's. And for you, Skinks and the Wook, half shares each at this point. Depending on who has to do what in the course of finding that treasure, we renegotiate. Agreed?
Hans studied Badur and the seething, red-haired girl. How much are we talking about? He wanted to know. The old man inclined his head. Why not ask him? Badur indicated the individual who had come on board and was following Chewbacca into the forward compartment. Now why did I assume he'd be human? Han wondered. Skinks was a Rurian, of average size, a little over a meter long. Low to the ground, his natural coat a thick, woolly amber with bands of brown and red. He moved on eight pairs of short limbs with a graceful, rippling motion. Feathery, bobbing antennae curled back from his head. Skinks had big, multifaceted red eyes, a tiny mouth, and small nostrils. Behind him rolled a baggage robo with several crates and boxes on its flatbed. Skinks paused and reared up on his last four pairs of extremities. The digits on his limbs, four apiece, were mutually opposable, deft and very versatile. He waved to the humans. Ah, Badur, he called in a rapid, high-pitched voice, and the lovely Hasty. How are you, young lady? This fine Wookiee I've already met. So you would be our captain, sir? Would be? I am. Han Solo. Delighted! I am Skinks of Ruria, Human History Subdepartment, Pre-Republic Subdivision, whose chair I currently hold. What do you use it for? Han asked, eyeing Skinks' strange anatomy. Seeing no reason to delay where Cash was concerned, he inquired, How much money are we after? Skinks posed his head in thought. There's so much conflicting information about the Queen of Ranroon. It's best to say this. Zim the Despot's treasure vessel was the largest ship ever built in her day. Your guess, sir, is no less plausible than my own. Han leaned back and thought about pleasure palaces gambling planets, star yachts, and all the women of the galaxy who hadn't been fortunate enough to make his acquaintance. Yet. Chewbacca snorted and returned to the cockpit. Count us in, Han announced. Tell the baggage clunker to leave your stuff right there, Skinks. Badur, Hasty, make yourselves at home. Hasty and Skinks both wanted to watch the liftoff from the cockpit. When they were alone, Badur spoke more confidentially. There's one thing I didn't want the others to hear, Han. I had my ear to the ground. Heard about some of the crazy jobs you've pulled. Word's out that somebody's looking for you. Money's being spread around. But I haven't heard any names. Any idea who it might be? Half the galaxy, it feels like sometimes. There had been many runs. Many deals, jobs, and foul-ups. How should I know? But his expression hardened, and Badur thought Han had a very good idea who might be seeking him. Han stood in the middle of the forward compartment, listening. The tech station and most of the other equipment in the compartment had been shut down to lower the noise level. He could feel the vibrations of the Millennium Falcon's engines. He heard a quiet sound behind him. Han spun, crouching, in execution of the speed draw, firing from the hip. The target remote, a small globe that moved on squirts of repulsor power and puffs of forced air, didn't quite dodge his beam. Its counterfire passed over him. 
Deactivated by his harmless tracer beam, the orb hung immobile, awaiting another practice sequence. Han looked over to where Bollocks, the labor droid, sat. His chest panels were open. Blue Max, the computer module installed in the droid's chest cavity, had been controlling the remote. I told you I wanted a tougher workout than that thing's idiot circuitry could give me, Han reprimanded Blue Max. Bollocks, a gleaming green barrel-chested automaton, had arms long enough to suggest a simian. The computer, an outrageously expensive package built for maximum capacity, was painted a deep blue, whence came his name. Part of Han's post-corporate sector splurge had included the modification the two mechanicals had requested, because without them, he and the Wookiee might never have survived. Bollocks now contained a newer and more powerful receiver, and Max had been provided with a compact projector. That was, the little module objected. Can I help it if you're so flaming fast? I could cut response time to nil if you want. Han sighed, no. And watch your language, Max. Just because I talk like that doesn't mean you can. He took the combat charge his weapon usually carried from its case at his belt. But Dora was reclining in one of the acceleration chairs. You've been practicing all through this run. You're beating the bolly every time. Who's got you worried? Han shrugged, then added as if by afterthought. Did you ever hear of a gunman called Galandro? Both of Badur's thick eyebrows rose. The Galandro? You don't bother yourself with small-timers, do you, Slick? So that's it. Han looked around. Hasty at her own and Badur's insistence, had commandeered Han's personal quarters, a cramped cubicle for some secret purpose. Chewbacca was at the controls, but Skinks was present. Han decided it didn't matter if the Rurian heard. I backed Galandro down a while back. Didn't even realize who he was. See, he had to let me do it at the time because it was part of a bigger deal he was working. Later on, though, he wanted to settle up. Sweat gathered on his forehead with the memory. He really moves. I couldn't even follow his practice draw. Anyway, I pulled a stunt on him and got out of the mess. I guess I made him look pretty bad, but I never thought he'd go to all this trouble. Galandro? Slick, you're talking about the guy who single-handedly hijacked the Quamar messenger on her maiden run and took over that pirate's nest, Gidon Five. All by himself. And he went to the gun against the Malorm family, drawing head bounty on all five of them. And no one has ever beaten the score he rolled up when he was flying a fighter with Marceau's demons. Besides which, he's the only man who ever forced the Assassin's Guild to default on a contract. He personally canceled half of their elite circle, one at a time, plus assorted journeymen and apprentices. I know, I know, Han said wearily, sitting down. Now, if I'd known who he was then, I'd have put a few parsecs between us at least. But what does a character like that want with me? Badur spoke as to a slow-witted child. Han, don't make someone like Galandro back down, then walk away making a fool of him. His kind 
live on their reputations. You know that as well as I do. They accept no insult and never, never back down. He'll make you his career until he settles with you. Han sighed. It's a big galaxy. He can't spend the rest of his life looking for me. He wished he could believe that. There was a sound behind him, and he threw himself sideways out of his chair, firing in midair, rolling to avoid the remote's stingshot. His tracer beam hit the dodging globe dead center. Good try, Max, he commented. You strike me as being very adept, Captain, Skinks said from the padded nook over the acceleration couch. Han climbed to his feet. You know all about Master Blasterman, don't you? He appraised the academician. Why'd you come on this run anyway? We could have brought the disc to you. The little Rurian seemed embarrassed. Er, that is, as you probably know, my species' life cycle is... Never saw a Rurian until I met you, Han interjected. Skinks, there are more life forms in this galaxy than anyone's bothered to count. You know that. Just listing the sentient ones is a life's work. Of course. To explain, we Rurians go through three separate forms after leaving the egg. There is the larva, that which you see before you. The cycle of the chrysalis, in which we undergo changes while in pupa form. And the end life stage, in which we become chroma wing flyers and ensure the survival of our species. The pupae are rather helpless you'll understand, and the chroma wings are, um, preoccupied, caring only for flight, mating, and egg-laying. There better be no cocoons or eggs on this ship, Han warned darkly. He promises, Bedour said impatiently. Now will you listen? Skinks resumed. All that leaves for us larval stage Rurians is to protect the pupae and ensure that the simple-minded chroma wings don't get into trouble, and to run our planet. We are very busy, right from birth. What's that got to do with a nice larva like you raising ship for lost treasure? Han asked. I studied the histories of your own scattered species, and I came to be fascinated with this concept. Adventure, Skinks confessed, as if unburdening himself of some dark perversity. Of all the races who gamble their well-being on uncertain returns, and there aren't that many, statistically. The traits most noticeable in humans. One of the most successful life forms. Skinks tried to frame his next words carefully. The stories, the legends, the songs, and holo thrillers held such appeal. Once, before I spin my chrysalis, to sleep deeply and emerge a chroma wing who will no longer be Skinks, I wish to cast aside good sense and try a human-style adventure. Saying the last, he sounded happy. There was a silence. Play him the song you played for me, Skinks. Badur finally invited. In the upholstered nook he had occupied for most of the trip, Skinks had set up his species version of a storage apparatus, a tree-like framework used in lieu of boxes or bags. From its various branches hung Skinks' personal possessions and items he wished to have close to him. Each artifact was an enigma, 
but among them was apparently at least one musical instrument. Han had heard enough non-human music to want to forego listening. Though he might be passing up decent entertainment, he might also be avoiding sounds resembling somebody's unoiled ground coach. He changed the subject hurriedly. Why don't you show us what's in the crates instead? Han looked around. Where's Hasty? She should be in on this. We'll be making Planetfall soon, and she has preparations to make, Badur said. Skinks, show him those remains. They should interest him. Skinks rose, shook out his amber coat to fluff it, and flowed smoothly out of his nook. Hoping that remains didn't refer to the sort of unappetizing objects he had seen in museums, Han stepped up to the crates with a power pry bar. At Skinks' direction, he opened a container and whistled softly in astonishment. Badur, give me a hand getting this thing out of the crate, will you? Between them, they strained and lifted out the object, setting it on the game board. It was an automaton's head. More correctly, it was the cranial turret of some robot out of ancient history. Its optical lenses were darkened by long radiation exposure. It was armored like a dreadnought with a coarse, heavy gray alloy Han didn't recognize. The assorted insignia and tech markings engraved into its surface were still visible and readable. Han expected the speaker grill to spew a challenge. It's a war robot. Zim the despot built a brigade of them to serve as his absolutely faithful royal guard, Skinks explained. They were, at the time, the most formidable human-form fighting machines in the galaxy. This one's remains were recovered from the floating ruins of Zim's orbital fortress, possibly the only one that wasn't vaporized in the Third Battle of Vontor, Zim's final defeat. There are more pieces in those other crates. There were at least a thousand just like this one traveling on board the Queen of Ranrune and guarding Zim's treasure when the ship vanished. Han opened another crate. It contained a huge chest plate. Han knew he would never be able to uncrate the thing without Chewbacca's help. In the plate's center was Zim's insignia, a death's head with sunbursts in the eye sockets. Bollocks entered. Chest panels open wide to let Blue Max perceive things as well. These two machines had been combined by a group of outlaw techs and had been instrumental in Han's survival at an authority prison called Star's End several adventures ago. Bollocks and Max had elected to join Han and Chewbacca, exchanging labor for passage in order to see the galaxy. Captain, first mate Chewbacca says we'll be reverting to normal space shortly, the droid announced. Then his red photoreceptors fell on the cranial turret, and Han could have sworn they abruptly became brighter. In a voice more hurried than his usual drawl, Bollocks queried, Sir, what is that? He went over to examine the thing more closely. Max studied the relic as well. So very old, mused the droid. What machine is this? War robot, Han told him, sifting through the other crates. Great-grandpa bollocks, maybe. He didn't notice the droid's metallic fingers 
quizzically feeling the shape of the massive head. Han was mumbling to himself. Reinforced stress points. Heavy gauge armor all points. Look how thick it is. You could run a machine shop off those power delivery systems. Hmm. And built-in weapons, chemical and energy, both. He stopped rummaging and looked at Skinks. These things must have been unstoppable. Even with a blaster, I wouldn't want to mix with one. He slid the lid back on the crate. Find yourselves a place and get comfortable, everybody. We'll revert from hyperspace as soon as I get to the cockpit. Where's Hasty? I can't hold up the whole... His jaw dropped. Hasty, it had to be her, had just swept into the forward compartment. But the factory world mining camp girl was gone. The red hair now fell in soft, fine waves. She wore a costume of rich, iridescent fabrics in black and crimson. The hem of her ruffled, wrap-front gown brushed the deck plates. And over it, she wore a long, quilted coat with voluminous sleeves, its formal cowl flung back, and its gilt waist sash left open. Her steps revealed supple, ornamentally stitched buskins. She had applied makeup, too, but with such restraint that Han couldn't tell what or how. She was cooler, more poised, and seemed older than Han recalled. Her expression dared him to make a crack. One side of him was trying to tally how long it had been since he had seen anyone this attractive. Girl, breathed Badur, for a second there I thought you were a ghost. It might have been Lanny standing there. An hour ago, I'd have said she couldn't find romance in a prison camp with a jetpack on. I'm slipping, Han thought. Then he found his voice. But why? While Hasty inspected Han distantly, Badur explained when Lanny diverted course on a freight run to store the log recorder disc at the vaults, she changed into this local outfit Hasty's wearing so word wouldn't leak that a woman from the mining camp had been there. Fortunately, she gave us the rental code and retrieval combination before she was killed by Juox people. Hasty must look as much like poor Lanny as possible, in case any of the vault personnel happen to remember her sister. Hasty motioned back toward Han's quarters. Nice wallow you have there. It looks like the end of a six-day sweepstakes party. His reply was cut short by an angry caterwauling from the cockpit. It was Chewbacca insisting that Han come up for the reversion to normal space. I wonder if I wouldn't be asking too much to view the procedure from the cockpit? Skinks said to Han. Sure, we'll find some place for you. Han met Hasty's aloof gaze. How about you? Care to watch? She pursed her mouth indifferently. Skinks left off observing what was, as far as he could conclude, a variation of human preening courting rituals, and excitedly hurried toward the cockpit, followed by Badur. Han, weighing Hasty's expression, decided neither to offer his arm nor to touch her in any ushering-along gesture. None of them noticed Bollocks, who remained behind, contemplating the war robot's head, his cold fingers resting on the imposing armored brow.